The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Doing well, Father. Good to see you. Yep. Thanks for having me back for another week, Father. We got through a lot of questions last week, so I'd like to uh, try and continue that to work through some of our great emails in the inbox. Uh, so if we could jump right in, Father, we <clears throat> had a great email from a faithful viewer who uh, wrote in and asked, Father, in light of all of the turmoil going on in the world right now, should we begin praying for the emergence of the great monarch of whom so many holy people have prophesied will appear in the end times? Well, we certainly could pray for that intention. I mean, there are a lot of prophecies that relate to the appearance of the great monarch. Uh, what I would personally uh, recommend, though, is praying for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. As the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary includes all other things, right? Mm -hmm. All the other prophecies are ordered toward that great triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart and... Um, the purification and the, the uh, uh, you know, glorification of Christ here on earth through his church, the purification of the church, and, uh, and uh, so all, all of the other good things that are prophesied are contained within that a triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. It's the thing that she mentioned as the ultimate outcome when she described the events uh, that would take place in the world uh, at Fatima, right, in 1917, at, at the, the July apparitions, Our Lady spoke about all the things that would happen. Uh, if we, well, she told us what would happen if we did what she asked. We didn't do those things. She also told us what would happen if we didn't do what she asked. We see those things unfolding before our very eyes right now. Notably, Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, right? Godless Marxism and state totalitarianism, right? And um, so uh, in the end, Our Lady said that her Immaculate Heart would triumph. And I, we have dedicated prayers for that purpose. And uh, I think that that's where we have to focus. My, that's my own thought. Okay. <clears throat> Right, and we do and have. By that. the way, those you do have the prayer. Yes, we do have that prayer on our website, Father. The prayer for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Excellent. So, okay. Yes. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for the Great Monarch <laughs> to come, certainly, but the Great Monarch will come uh, according to a, a plan. Okay, and that plan is in the hands of God. Um, that doesn't mean one can't pray for it to accelerate it somehow. But I think ultimately the goal to pray for is that triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. So. Okay. 
Perfect. All right, uh, the next question. Father, is it true that the Magi who visited our Lord shortly after his birth, uh, is it true that they were Zoroastrians prior to becoming uh, some of the first Christians? Well, there are some theories about that. They think, well, you know, some people suggest that Zoroaster, uh, the idea of the, uh, you know, fire and flame and the, the, the star and kind of connect all of those things and say, well, the Magi actually must have, they say, uh, must have been adherents or, you know, followers of Zoroastrianism in tying all of their beliefs together to come to the conclusion that the, the, um, the planet associated Israel would uh, signify something appearing in the sky and that they set out on the great trek looking for the, the newborn king. Uh, because of some kind of a Zoroastrian uh, connection with uh, uh, astrology, right? This is what they make, try to make it out to be. I don't, there's no way of proving this. There's no way of knowing this. I mean, there's, there's even dispute among biblical scholars as to where they came from. Did they come from Persia? Did they come from Arabia? Some try to go by the gifts that they brought as to where their origin was. Uh, the great uh, Cornelius Alapide uh, gives various thoughts on the subject and then uh, pronounces his own thought, which is very helpful. Um, but in any case, you know, it, it, when it comes right down to it, though, you have all these different uh, uh, commentators, but they're giving their own views on where the Magi actually came from uh, the point to which they returned, their homeland, and what it was that inspired them to recognize the coming of the birth of the newborn king in the great star in the east. One thing we do know, for the church tells us so, is that the star was not merely a natural phenomenon. It was a supernatural sign from God. So if the star in the east was indeed, as the church says, a supernatural sign from God, we can expect that the knowledge of the Magi, that it, put, that it spoke of the birth of a newborn king in Israel, was not merely a, a natural occurrence that they, they put two and two together from um, Zoroaster or, you know, whatever, and, and said, oh, look, that, that means that there's a newborn king in Israel. It, it must have been something that was, um, by the grace of God, inspired in their minds. They knew this, not with mere human certainty or human certitude, but they undertook this journey because they had some inspiration from God to come on a mission to find uh, the Savior, not only of the Jews, but of the, of the Gentiles too, of all mankind. So, um, you know, we see the shepherds come to the manger and recognize they were Jews, okay? They represented their, the people of the Jews. We had the kings come representing the people of all the Gentiles. And uh, there they recognized a newborn king, their newborn king and their savior. And the magi were inspired not only to, um, you know, come to recognize a newborn king of Israel, they came to recognize their own king. They brought him gifts, and the gifts that they brought actually uh, spoke of a faith that they had. They were inspired by God to know 
by virtue of their gifts of the royalty of this child and the gold that they brought, right? And the, um, the divinity of the child and the incense that they brought to him and the future death, sacrificial death of this child by the myrrh that they brought. That's the significance of the gifts that they brought according to commentators such as Cornelius Salapide, St. Augustine and others. So, so um, now I, I think we'd make a mistake in just attributing uh, their expectation of uh, special birth of a newborn king in Israel to mere Zoroastrianism. There was much more involved in that. Okay. Now, might they have been Zoroastrians? Possibly, right? Okay. <clears throat> was that the key to understanding uh, what happened and their decision, the recognition of the newborn king and they're determined to come to him? No, there was more to it than that. Okay. All right, that's great, Father. Then moving on, um... One of our viewers asks, is it true, Father, that some of the Eastern rites of the Church do not have the words of consecration in their liturgy? Because uh, apparently there are some Novus Ordo uh, apologists who are saying that uh, the problems with the uh, consecration, the words of consecration in the Novus Ordo Mass are kind of a moot point. It doesn't really even matter because there are some valid Eastern rites in the Church who don't even have any words of consecration. Is that true, Father? That is a very, uh, shall we say, uh, desperate argument, okay? <laughs> Trying to find some kind of a justification or a theological, uh, uh, what should I say, grounds for believing, uh, for, for arguing in favor of the Novus Ordo. In fact, you say there are some uh, Novus Ordo apologists who are reaching for that. And to my mind, that is so desperate, it indicates to me that they, they know deep down there's a very serious problem with the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. And they have to reach for arguments like that to try to shore it up. Then I'd say, at that point, they should give it up. <laughs> you know, if they have to make an argument like that uh, in favor of the validity of the Novus Ordo, they should simply acknowledge the fact that there's a very serious problem with Novus Ordo and they shouldn't be touching it mm -hmm. uh, as Catholics. Um, but, I mean, there, there are, I understand, I'm not a student of the subject, but I understand from what I have uh, found uh, from others who I, I know know these things, and also some information I came across myself, that there are schismatic rites, there are schismatic rites that um, the Novus Ordo itself, I think the, the New Order Church has actually established ties with, yeah. but actually there are schismatic groups that have rites that do not have the, any words of consecration, anything recognizable of words of consecration of the body and blood of Christ. In them. And uh, they are, well, I, I think traditionally the Church would just say that they are completely null, utterly void, that there is no consecration in them. There's not even an attempted consecration or a pretended consecration in them. <clears throat> so um, I would say to try to argue from the basis of some uh, oriental schismatic group and its, um, what should I say, um, distorted or corrupted right in favor of the Novus Ordo is not an argument in favor of the Novus Ordo. Quite the contrary. I think it tells you that the Novus Ordo is itself very corrupt. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Uh, moving right along then, 
bother next email how does one who does not live near a uh, traditional catholic chapel how do how do they prepare for their death and burial and funeral can they even well, is it even possible to live a good life and stay in the city of grace right pray every day for the grace of making a perfect act of contrition right which forgives all sin uh, go to holy, uh, go to receive the sacrament of penance and be validly absolved as often as they can, if they have to travel. Maybe once every month or every three months, they're able to travel to a traditional Catholic chapel where there's a true traditional Catholic priest, not a a, a would be or a wannabe traditional Catholic priest, but a real traditional Catholic priest who is ordained by a real traditional Catholic bishop. Were validly, uh, the bishop validly consecrated, the priest validly ordained, the traditional rite, of course, and uh, make a good confession to receive absolution. As I say, they might not be able to go, but once every month or once every two or three months. But there are Catholics who actually live in traditional Catholic uh, parishes who don't go to confession more than that anyway. Not that, the, not, not that I'm advising that or encouraging that, but that would already be something, and especially if they're trying to live a good life, faithful to Christ. That can keep them in the state of grace, and they can, they can also receive our Lord worthily in Holy Communion at the same time. So, um, I mean, unless they live out in the middle of the Arctic or the Antarctic, I would think that most people would be able to uh, make a journey like that periodically in life anyway. What about but, I mean, as far mass? as the burial... Burial. Well, I, I realize that they don't necessarily have access to a traditional Catholic chapel, but traditional priests have actually flown in and had funerals in funeral homes. They bring a basket, they set everything up. I know our own priests have traveled hundreds of miles and have taken everything they needed for a traditional Catholic funeral and uh, even had servers come with them in cast, with Cassigan surplus and conducted a true and Full tra traditional Catholic funeral mass right there in the funeral home. Yeah. Well, the funeral homes do have chapels, you know. And um, but uh, recently, we just had a, a viewer who lost his his wife uh, to death. God rest her soul. And uh, we're not actually able to go um, and have a funeral um, right there in the funeral home. But I'm offering the funeral mass here at our Immaculate Conception. And uh, he will be able to, uh, you know, live stream the Mass from where he is. And I understand he's very happy to do that, okay? And we're also helping to arrange a, a, a Catholic burial for her. In the future, when a priest is in the vicinity, um, we'll go and we'll bless the grave, okay? Uh, but the essential thing right now is that the requirements for a Catholic burial be met, and they will be, and that the traditional Catholic funeral mass be offered for her, and that will be done. Mm -hmm. So even that, I mean, if, if someone were to die in the middle of the Sahara Desert, have no ability to attend a traditional mass or arrange for a traditional mass, a Catholic funeral mass for a loved one, I mean, I, I don't know how things are in the middle of Sahara, but um, <laughs> if they could have access, they can actually live stream a Mass being offered at a Immaculate Conception for their loved one, a real traditional Catholic funeral Mass for them. 
And uh, the graces are there. That's what counts, right? That's yes, what matters. Yes, that's great, brother. Thank you for doing that. Well, certainly. There are other things that could be said, too. But, you know, these things that have to be arranged on a case-by-case basis to see what can be possibly be done. So <clears throat> if people would contact us through you, through the What Catholics Believe website, we'll certainly do whatever we can for the good souls out there who have the faith, live the faith, die in the faith. Absolutely. All right. Uh, next question. Father, who is Buddha and is he worshipped as a false god? I don't think they worship Buddha. I mean, I don't, I don't know that Buddhists even believe in a god at all. Not in the sense that we know God as the supreme being who made all things by the power of intelligence and will, uh, knowing and loving. I don't know that they even have a concept of a knowing and loving God. I think they consider it more like, almost like, uh, well, just fate, you know, just kind of uh, the force or something like that. In fact, uh, Spielberg himself was a Buddhist, right? So, um, you know, in the, uh, what is it, Star Wars, Star Wars uh, yeah. business, uh, it's all like uh, veiled Buddhism, right? So I don't think they consider Buddha a god. He's a teacher. And he's a teacher teaching us how to get through life in this world so as to escape it, essentially. <clears throat> and not really so much escape to anything. I don't think they have any concept of heaven. Uh, it seems to me that it's very nihilistic that you escaped the misery and, and troubles of this life, and that's the best you can do. I don't think there's actually a Buddhist heaven where you have, you know, uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful infinitely present to you in, a, in one true God, who is, as I say, the supreme being who created all. Uh, so the very concept of a Buddhist heaven, I, I think, and as far as we're concerned, it doesn't exist. Whatever they might consider it to be heaven, unlike nirvana, right, uh, of the Hindus, uh, I don't know that we would consider it to be anything at all. Really. Um, but um, so um, Buddha is a is a teacher, and they they talk about you know the bodhisattvas, and they talk about various teachers and. Um, those who come into the world to teach us how to escape uh, the rigors of, of life in the world and go through the various reincarnations. I don't know if that was actually essential to initial Buddhism. It might have been a, a, uh, an add-on as <laughs> time went on. Uh, I know we, we have people who are quite expert in, in uh, Buddhist thought. I'd like to, can, uh, to consult them now, but I don't know that we can do so gracefully. Um, but I'll, I'll look into that a little more and consult with them about that. Um, it's interesting. I, I thought it was interesting, though, that uh, someone was pointing out once that, uh, according to Grimm's Law of Consonant Shift, you know the Brothers Grimm who did the fairy tales? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they were actually linguists. They were philologists. They, they studied the histories of languages. Um, and uh, they came up with various laws trying to trace the origins of words through languages back, all the way back to the Proto-Indo-European language source. Um, which, is, which is rather interesting, because the whole idea is based upon the fact that the human race kind of all originated from one source, you know, and the language also basically from one source, which is very biblical, I'd say. But uh, 
according to Grimm's law of consonant shift, <laughs> excuse me, we have the, the labial con- consonants with the use of the lips, the p-b-f-f sounds. We have the dentals t-d-th sounds. We have the gutturals k-g-g-h sounds in all the languages. And they tend to flow from one language, language into another. So we even have so many vestiges of it in America, in, in our own English. Uh, we talk about rough, R-O-U-G-H, and where does that G-H sound come from? You know, we talk about church, in German it's Kirche, Kirche, and we have the K sound and the hard K sound, the gutturals there, which became church in English. We have these sounds kind of um, morphing from language to language throughout the world, and we can kind of trace words back to common origins. So, <clears throat> the reason I mentioned that is the <clears throat> one philologist came up with the idea that, well, if you take that idea and <clears throat> take it back to the philosopher Pythagoras, you know, we have the Pythagorean theorem in mathematics and so on and so forth, <clears throat> and uh, that they say if if you try to analyze the name Pythagoras. <clears throat> that you can, through Grimm's law of sound shift, come back to the teacher of Buddha. Buddha, Pitha, Pithos, right? According to the, the again, the transformation of the labials and the, den- and the, the dental sounds, Pitho could be Buddha, and Gora could be Guru, where we get the word Guru from. Okay, and uh, so the thought that uh, Pythagoras actually, who did quite a bit of traveling in the East, <clears throat> might well have been given the name the teacher of Buddha, which would make an interesting conf- uh, connection anyway. Why did I bring this up? I had no idea. <laughs> but I guess it's because I always found it rather an interesting idea, you know, that historically uh, Grimm's law of sound shift could kind of lead us uh, to trails that we ordinarily wouldn't take. Wow. But in any case, um, I mean, you're a bit of a student of languages yourself anyway, Tom, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're a certified signer, right? Yes. And um, you see connections there oh, yeah. that yeah. Uh, are made too. So you're not any stranger to what I'm saying right now. But uh, uh, basically, <clears throat> uh, what really brought that to mind is Buddhism, I think, is more of a philosophy. It's a, it's a philosophy with kind of a veneer of religiosity to it, I think. Uh, more than an actual religion. Because, you know, I think of religion having a deity. And I don't know that Buddhism really has a, an actual deity as we would think of a deity. Mm-hmm. It, what... Now, I will verify that with those who are much more conversant with the subject than I am. Okay. Uh, Father, is there um, any kind of connection that we could draw between Buddhism and the, the theosophical societies and the, the Lord Maitreya that they have talked about because there is this Maitreya um, supposedly in, in Buddhism that they talk about. Is there any kind of connection or crossover between them? Well, I mean, the theosophical societies have kind of, I think, um, what should I say, roped in Buddhism to their orbit. And they're trying to give themselves a veneer of... Um, tradition and a veneer of antiquity that they don't really have. 
I mean, theosophists are basically, um, well, what, what does it mean? Theo, theo, theos in Greek means God, right? Mm -hmm. Theos means God. That's where we've got the, um, again, Grimm's Law Soundship, the, the uh, Latin word Deus, right? And, um, and uh, the Sophia in Greek means wisdom, right? So uh, the Theosophical societies, rather than philosophical, are trying to basically um, revert back to the old Gnosticism. It's basically just Gnosticism repackaged. And they're trying to tie it together with this ancient wisdom of the ascended masters, tie it together with the Bodhisattvas, that there are wise men in the Himalayas somewhere who, rather than you know, go on to the heavenly realms, whatever they are, uh, decide to stay here and teach mankind what? Well, teach mankind that basically we are God. That's really all there is of, of the divine. It's, it's us. It's ourselves. You know? This is essentially the same idea as, as Gnosticism. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. <clears throat> but if you go back and you read the, uh, the life of, I don't recommend it necessarily, of Elena Petrovna Blavatsky, who is actually recognized universally as the founder of, of uh, theosophic, theosophism, the Theosophical Societies, <clears throat> and, uh, and then her successor, Annie Besant, and her successor, Alice Ann Bailey, they all had this kind of airy idea of the New Age uh, movement. They tried to tie it together with Eastern mysticism, and as I say, give it, given it a veneer of some kind of wisdom, you know, ancient uh, lost wisdom that they are now going to inflict upon the world. It uh, very much coincides with, I think, what's happening in the world today. As we're, we're moving toward this one world religion, as we're moving toward this ecumenical idea, this train wreck of ecumenism a la Francis, who's honoring all these mystical religions, the only religion he despises and detests is traditional Catholicism. That's the one thing that he would like to utterly eradicate from the face of the earth. Um, but I think this is, this is basically where, where the whole world is going right now. You mentioned Lord Maitreya. He's supposed to be the, the world master, the lord of the world, who is going to finally teach mankind its own divinity. I mean, the ultimate teaching of Gnosticism, the ancient Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Where did that begin? In the Garden of Eden, right? When Satan tempted Eve with that. You defy God and you shall be as God yourself, knowing good and evil, right? Well, heaven knows if there was a time when that is kind of materializing before our very eyes, or they're trying to make it materialize, this is it. Well, okay. Um, another email, Father, this uh, one asks about the Catholic perspective on immigration, um, and they ask if we uh, have a responsibility to, uh, to support what they call nation-destroying immigration by radically alien populations. The Catholic Church has always taught we have an obligation of piety to our own country. We have an obligation to love, well, our own life, our own God-given life, and to protect it so that suicide is the worst of all the sides, of all the murders, right? Because our first obligation is to appreciate the life that God has given us. Right. But after that, then next in line would be our parents, our children, right? Those who are near and dear to us. We have to 
love them the most by nature. We have an obligation to love them. And uh, our country also. We have an obligation to love our country and protect our country from being destroyed. Um, so it is contrary, absolutely contrary to traditional Catholic teaching to support nation-destroying so-called immigration, which is really just invasion. What's going on right now? Sponsored by the Biden regime, uh, resident Biden is actually throwing open the, uh, throwing down the, the borders of the country, just completely dropping the borders of the country, as though he's dis dissolving the United States of America before our very eyes, just dissolving the country before our very eyes. Mm -hmm. It's like an acid, dissolving the country at all levels, you know. Mm -hmm. So no, that is not consonant with traditional Catholic teaching at all. It's gravely immoral to do that. How, how do we balance the idea of immigration, though, with the command that we have to love our neighbor, and we have all of these, these poor third-world immigrants who are coming? Well, we, as I say, we have an obligation to love our neighbor, but we don't have an obligation to love all our neighbor all equally. You know, we have a obli greater obligation. Uh, a father would have a greater obligation to protect his children. Um, that's his first God-given obligation, right? Mm -hmm. His family. And, um, so um, a, a woman would have an obligation to protect her children, those who depend on her personally, right? Uh, does that mean it's the only obligation she has? Does that mean it's the only obligation a man has to protect his own children? No, there are other obligations too. There could be an obligation strong enough that a man would actually say farewell to his wife and children and go off and fight a war and possibly die to protect his country, right? Not one of these, uh, for, you know, foreign legion soldier of fortune kind of wars like our, you know, uh, government likes to engage in. Um, but in any case, um, we do have uh, a hierarchy of obligations. Huh? And uh, yes, we do try using the resources and the means we have for the good of the entire world and everyone, right? Everyone, Catholic, anyone, Christian, non-Christian, we try... Wherever there's a disaster, we're always there to send aid, personnel with expertise. We're always there to help. But that doesn't mean that we should simply um, destroy our country and those who depend on us initially, our own citizenry, in order to basically leap into the flames, right? And um, this is what they're advocating now. Francis is a big pusher for this kind of thing. Uh, he wants to destroy nations as such. He, he's a globalist, right? One-worlder. Um, he wants to and ultimately destroy the very nation, uh, the very nature of the nation, uh, the human nation. It's not, you know, being a, na a nation is not mere tribalism. Francis and his globalists would actually reinstitute just mere tribalism. They would actually reinstitute mere tribalism, where the world becomes a mass of warring tribes. That's what he would eventually do. Um, but if you have a Christian nation, as it's supposed to be, a Catholic nation is what it's supposed to be, under Christ the King, they would be uh, not only stable, they would be prosperous, and they could do the most good for all of their neighbor nations in the world. But destroying the nation is going to benefit no one. And you take the United States of America out of the equation, and essentially the world is going to, in fact, descend into complete tyranny.
What is the difference between a nation and a tribe, Father? Well, a tribe, you have family bonds and so on, but a nation is much more complex. And I mean, you have, you have various, you, you can have various nationalities as we do here, but they're all working toward a common goal. A tribe will basically sacrifice, anybody in the tribe uh, has no value unto himself. The only value he has, the only dignity he has, the only worth he has, is as a member of the tribe. The tribe defines his value. The tribe defines his purpose. And he must sacrifice or be sacrificed for the tribe. And ultimately, I mean, communism is very tribalistic in that regard, too. But uh, in, in the nation, you know, the nation uh, is, a, is a nation who has responsibilities toward the individual. And a true nation, as in a Catholic nation, recognizes the value of the life of the individual, even apart from the nation. That the nation exists to serve the perfection of the individual member, and not the other way around. Uh, so much that, that it is, um, as in the church, for example, the church was established by Christ to serve the justification and sanctification of the individual soul for heaven, you know? So the idea of sacrificing, um, you know, a, a section of the society or even one individual unjustly, even taking one innocent life unjustly would be abhorrent to the church, uh, as in abortion, even if it would save the entire world from nuclear war, you couldn't do it. The same with a nation. A nation looks upon the, the, the lives of its citizens as something sacred, as a Catholic, uh, as, a, as a Catholic mind would, and recognize that, um, you know, you, you can't have a nation with any value unless the, the lives of the individuals who are citizens have an absolute value, God-given value bestowed on them. Um, you know, when our, the framers of our Declaration of Independence wrote what they did, uh, they actually spoke of those God-given rights that are not given by the society, not given by the nation, not given by the, the government. They're not privileges, they're rights. God-given rights. And to be a true nation, other than merely a tribe, you'd have to have that kind of a foundation. Now, that foundation comes from our faith. That's why we know that you cannot have a true nation with any real order and justice without the kingship of Christ, because he and he alone gives us those principles we need to go by uh, as, you know, God-given principles, speaks for God himself, because he is the Son of God. Mm -hmm. He's brought that message to us here on earth. There's a lot more that can be said, and you know that I'm perfectly willing to say it. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. You probably have other questions. If, if I could ask one more, Father, why? I mean, this this obviously sounds sounds great, sounds wonderful. Why why would someone want to be a globalist or a tribalist rather rather than uh, rather than have a nation like you talk about? Uh, because of a very misguided and uh, I should say mutant faith in humanity of some kind, some kind of idea almost even Gnostic or Theosophical idea of the human race <clears throat> as being some kind of divine being, subject not to a creator, God, um, but a, a race which must collectively decide its own, its own fate, where it's going to evolve from here, you know. 
And so um, the whole race has to be united for one man to have any value. I mean, it almost sounds like Francis. You know, we all, we all have to unite. All the, all the races of mankind must unite in one for anyone to have any value. You know? And, um, you know, this is tribalism is all it is. And really it is uh, a denial of... Uh, Christ the King? No, Christ the King. It is a denial of the kingship of Christ. Yeah. So we have to look to a United Nations. We have to look to some kind of world body. We have to look to some kind of world council to control the economies of the world. That means to control the goods that you need for life. Um, and we need a, a body that has teeth that can enforce its will on everyone. We must have that if we're going to have any justice on earth. Well, what about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? What about his kingship? They've just completely bypassed that. As though it meant nothing to them. And who has said what I just said about the need for this world body to control the economies of the world? John the 23rd? Paul the 6th? John Paul the 2nd? Benedict the 16th? Francis, right? They've all said the same thing. Since Popolorum Progressio of John the 23rd, they've been saying the same thing. It's all globalism and it's not Christianity. Not, not Catholicism, by any means. And that leads to perfect conditions for the Antichrist. But it leads yeah. to perfect conditions for Lord Maitreya to yeah. take control, right? And talk to mankind about its divinity. Right? Collective divinity. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> okay. Well, Father, I know you've got a lot in front of you there. Anything else you'd like to mention on the show? Oh, that's very dangerous. <laughs> you know. Well, uh, we can congratulate the people of New South Wales, Australia, because uh, Gladys uh, Berrettiklian has resigned. Okay, she was their prime premier, and she was the one who locked them down mercilessly, all in the name of their, their good, they're good, taking good care of them and locking them down and uh, then sicking the Gestapo on them, right? The Australian police uh, mercilessly beating them, hounding them, and uh, imprisoning them, and so on. Uh, it's just incredible what happened happened in Australia. And now uh, Gladys herself uh, has been um, charged with corruption. Some say, uh, you know, directing contracts to a friend she was particularly fond of, some somebody in government, no. Well, he was in government, he's not there now, but you know, we're talking about uh, thousands and thousands of dollars directed to contracts because of that personal relationship she had with this gentleman. <clears throat> but now there are also charges that she was on the take from Pfizer and other vaccine manufacturers to, um, to enforce the, the lockdowns for the sake of compelling everyone to be vaccinated. Because again, there are billions and billions of dollars being made from these vaccines, okay? And uh, now we'll see how this plays out. There's going to be, there are going to be investigations about this. So we'll see how it plays out. But the immediate effect for <clears throat> the people of New South Wales is that uh, they have been freed, we, we hope and pray for their sakes, from these despotic lockdowns that this woman 
has uh, so brazenly, uh, you know, imposed on every man, woman, and child, except her friends, of course, I guess, the elite and the government, uh, who seem to be exempt from these things, like Fauci, you know, uh, Anthony Fauci says recently, well, he doesn't know that we'll be able to get together for Christmas this year, okay? Well, what, what arrogance is that, right? <laughs> then there was a pushback, so he says, well, I didn't mean it that way, okay? But you can be sure that when he says that, it doesn't apply to Banshee Pelo- I mean, Nancy Pelosi. It doesn't apply to her, right? It wouldn't apply to Newsom. It wouldn't apply to all these other people about not getting together for Christmas because they're certainly going to get together with Christmas. Uh, no masks, of course. No social distancing. None of that. Okay. But it'll apply to everybody else. You see, this is, this is what the, uh, the nomenclatura... You've heard the name nomenclatura. This is what they claim for themselves. Like they are the supermen, and that doesn't apply to them. It just applies to all the rest, the cattle. So, um, but in any case, um, so this is the same attitude we see in the ruling, uh, you know, party wherever they happen to be in power, including it seems with Gladys. Berechiklian, uh, or Tiklian, as they would like to pronounce it. Now a man has come to uh, assume the reins of uh, premiership. He's become the premier of New South Wales in Australia, and his name is Perrotte. I understand that's the pronunciation, P-E-R-R-O-T-T-E-T. Uh, the new premier of New South Wales, Australia, he's a Novosoro Catholic, but conservative. I hope he really is a conservative and doesn't slavishly follow the Novus Ordo bishops, because if he does, eventually he'll betray the cause, just as they do, it seems, every single time. <clears throat> but for the time being, what he's saying is very Catholic. He's uh, totally against abortion, totally pro-life, I understand. And he's completely against the lockdown, com- absolutely against the lockdowns, and he wants to let the people in uh, New South Wales live normal human lives again. So I expect that he's going to begin immediately as the 46th Premier of New South Wales to uh, dismantle the lockdown regulations and let the people breathe again. Now, is this the work of grace? I can't help but think it is. But we have to see what the people are going to do now if they're going to thank God and humbly, you know, uh, uh, pray and, and, and thanks and offer true sacrifice and the holy sacrifice of the Mass uh, for their liberation and come out strongly pro-life and uh, not provoke the wrath of God against them again. Let's see how they come out of this if they've been duly chastened. Uh, hopefully now we'll live a more godly life, you know. Um, um, now they're able to even practice the traditional Catholic faith, I expect, as a result of this change. We'll see. But anyway, that, that's big news. And it just goes to show how dramatically things can change and how rapidly. Uh, because, uh, you know, until uh, this woman stepped down, uh, it, it didn't look as though there was any really relief in sight or any light at the end of that tunnel. But it wasn't a tunnel at all. It was just a pit. Now it appears to have been a tunnel with light at the end. So we should pray for them, right? We have to pray for them. In fact, 
there were forecasts that we are on the way, we will become what they are now, or what they were. Right? Now, of course, there are other states in Australia governed by other people who may be more of the mold of uh, Beratiklian, but we'll see, you know, what this starts, if this starts some kind of a... Uh, some kind of a reaction here. By the way, I understand that uh, this gentleman, Dominic Perrote, uh, was elected the 46th Premier of New South Wales in a 39 to 5 vote landslide. Mm. That's a statement. <laughs> that is really a statement. Talk about a mandate, right? The people have had enough of this, right? So anyway, but we're, we're still dealing with it here in the United States of America, too. And, um, you know, we're, we're still dealing with these vaccine mandates. And uh, I'm still hearing from people, even uh, listeners of what Catholics believe have been contacting me. The trouble I run into, though, is unless I know them, and I, I can't verify. I, I have to certify they have sincere religious beliefs. Uh, and this is their objection. And <clears throat> I have to be careful to certify only what I know. So somebody emails and said, uh, send me a letter testifying to my sincere religious beliefs. I don't know them. I wish I did, but I don't, really. So I can't really certify that under the circumstances without basically undermining all of the other certifications I've given. If it comes to light that I've certified something that of which I had no knowledge, that calls into question all of the others that I have certified from personal knowledge and puts them at risk. So I have to be very careful about that. I'd like to help everybody um, who asks, but I, I can't do so honestly, you know, if I'm personally testifying to what I know. Right. Uh, if there's a way to know this, then I, I'd be glad to do that, okay, to testify as such, but I can't testify to what I'm not. I don't know. So anyway, uh, but your heart goes out to these dear people because they're suffering under the, the, the hand of tyrannical uh, mandates coming from on high, resident Biden and, and all of those who uh, gather around him and speak for him and through him. Um, and there are so many people suffering right now, not only from loss of livelihood, but some are losing their lives because of the vaccine. Uh, there are doctors now who are actually coming out and saying that your vaccines are killing people. The uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system is uh, actually, we're getting toward a million cases just here in America. I mean, in, in, in Europe, they have their own system, and the, the number of cases of adverse events are just astronomical. Actually, literally thousands of times more than with any previous vaccine, or all the previous vaccines put together. Just from these vaccines now coming out of Pfizer and AstraZeneca and, um, and Moderna and so on. And... Um, They've been approved still only for uh, emergency use. Nothing has been approved, uh, finally, uh, that is on the market by the FDA. And, um, you know, I understand that until they, gain, they, they apply for and obtain final approval, they can continually change the formula that what they're injecting people with now is not what they originally were injecting people with. They've actually added ingredients, and they're not even obliged to, to tell you what they are. Heaven only knows what they're sticking in people right now. But there are 
terrible adverse reactions in people. They're suffering uh, crippling effects, uh, suffering blood clots, they're suffering uh, heart diseases, they're suffering, um, well, deaths even, right? They're suffering, uh, in, many, in some cases, deaths, uh, actually thousands of deaths. Some are saying up to at least 50,000 deaths that we can count on. And that the data with the um, uh, the um, Medicare, the Medicare data about this reporting deaths of Medicare recipients listing the cause of death as uh, those who have received the vaccines uh, goes into tens of thousands. And it's not necessarily being reported. You know, you have to go looking for that information. Mm-hmm. But it is real information. There are doctors who are making that clear. You know, you talk to most doctors, it seems, and you say, well, you know, we're hearing this, we're hearing that, and they're saying this. They say, well, there's no data, there's no data, there's no data. Well, it's easy to say there's no data if you don't go looking for data, if you're just not interested in data. But actually, if you begin to examine the fact, you realize, well, evidently there is data because somebody's coming up with data somewhere, and you you should find out if it's, it's reliable or not. But it's enough to make people stand up and take notice and think, no, there's something going on here. At least there's smoke. Let's see what's going on. If there's fire behind it, you'd think any reasonable person, especially in the medical field, would know it. Now, on top of that, we have nurses who their boots on the ground. The nurses really are the boots on the ground right now. They're seeing what's coming into their hospitals, and they're telling us <clears throat> they're not full. That the problem is not that they don't have beds; they don't have nurses. <clears throat> That's why they're turning people away. And uh, you know, given a choice between admitting somebody to the hospital was vaccinated or non-vaccinated, they may both show up testing positive for COVID-19 or the Delta variant, and they'll send the vaccinated person home and hospitalize the non-vaccinated person, even though they're mildly sick and they don't need any real help, uh, any special help. They could have been sent home too, but they'd rather hospitalize them because then they can say, look, all those unvaccinated people are being hospitalized now, not the vaccinated Same. And we're saying, we're being told that the vaccinated people are the ones who are not experiencing the, the very serious symptoms. Well, again, you know, you talk to nurses on the ground, and they're saying that the majority of people that they are still having in, uh, who, are, who are very sick have been fully vaccinated. Um, so there, there are those who are actually reporting that on the ground. Okay, then you talk to a physician about it, and they say, well, there's no data. But you're hearing this from actually the nurses who are actually in the wards, tending the patients in their beds, and they know what they're dealing with. It's time we, people took them seriously. You know what it seems to me, Tom? I mean, for what it's worth, and I don't have to tell you that I'm not a doctor. Everybody knows that. But I mean, you know, you, you, you're, you're taking all of this in, whether it's information or misinformation. You know, there's just an avalanche, a tsunami of this stuff is coming at you, you know. Uh, the mainstream media is just pouring it on you every single day, every broadcast, every five minutes of every broadcast. They're talking about this. Then you get the the alternative media, which is telling you the rest of the story and warning you, you know, about what's going on out there. But remember early on, uh, remember Amy Acton, the health director installed by our illustrious governor of Ohio, um, uh, Mr. DeWine, Michael DeWine, okay, why he chose a rabid abortionist, a militant, to be the health director, I don't know, because he's supposed to be a Republican pro-lifer, 
But anyway, but we were being told that, well, <clears throat> there are five cases verified. I'm talking about February, March back in 2019. We have five verified cases of COVID-19, but that probably represents 100,000 who are asymptomatic out there who are out there infecting the rest of the, of the, of the state. That, those are the figures we were being given back in 2019. Asymptomatic, hundreds of thousands, but we only have maybe a half a dozen actual verified cases. See? <clears throat> so what did we have to do? Shut down the schools, lock down the state, right? Only essential things could remain open, right? They said the churches were essential at the time, although the bishops... Uh, shut down the churches anyway, right? Um, even before they were told to do so. They were told they were essential, then they went ahead and proved they weren't by just shutting everything down. Well, meanwhile, uh, we were told, well, we have to flatten the curve, right? Because suddenly we're going to have this explosion of cases from these asymptomatic carriers, especially super spreaders. They don't show symptoms, but they're going around <clears throat> infecting hundreds of other people around them, okay? Well, now, the more recent information says there's no evidence to show that asymptomatic people are carrying the disease and transmitting the disease to others. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. They never had evidence to show that those who are asymptomatic, even if they tested positive, were, were transmitting the disease to anybody. But by these vaccines, they've actually created an entire and enormous segment of the population who may be asymptomatic, but they are carriers and they are transmitting the disease. I mean, even the current head of the CDC acknowledged that, that those who are fully vaccinated can contract COVID-19, especially this Delta variant, they say, and transmit it to others. And the viral load that they carry is, is heavier than those who are not vaccinated. So they, they actually can be asymptomatic super spreaders. They've actually created this by their vaccine. So it seems to me anyway. And I would say, okay, maybe Pfizer would say, Father Jenkins is saying, we're wantonly, knowingly killing people with our vaccine. Yes, I do say, right? <laughs> Um, and Moderna and the rest of them. And that we've created this enormous population of super spreaders to spread the disease. And now we're mandating the vaccine to deal with it. And we see what the vaccine is doing. They say, yeah, you know what you're doing. You know exactly what you're doing. The Veritas Project has, has caught them on tape, video uh, recorded them, their own scientists acknowledging this. So what are we saying? One thing they will not do, sue me. Why, with all of that, I mean, there, there, there are much more likely candidates to sue than me. There are very high-profile doctors who are virologists and immunologists and so on who are saying exactly this, have been for quite some time. Why don't they sue them? But you know why they won't sue them. Because if they sue them, it will go to court. There'll be discovery. The truth will be made known. And they don't want the truth to be known. So you can stand up and accuse them 
of being mass murderers and committing genocide by their vaccines, and even by the way they handled even their protocols of what they allow, what they demand, and what they forbid to treat you, you can accuse them. There are doctors, actually, who have done so. They're they're being shut down by social media, silenced, but no one is suing them for what they're saying. Can you tell me that if Pfizer thought that they had a case and they were perfectly innocent and they were being accused of mass murder by this, that they wouldn't have lawsuits going? But see, they already have. They're immunized against any of this, right? No matter what happens to the people they infect or they vaccinate, nobody has any standing to sue them or to hold them responsible for the damage that is done or the suffering that is caused. Nobody can hold them responsible for it. And they don't need to hold anybody responsible for charging them with murder. In fact, it's in their best interest just to silence those people, not to charge them with a slander, because if they charge them in any court, you know, before any court, they would have a chance to present the evidence, the data. That's one thing they, they can't allow. They can't allow the data to speak for itself. They can't allow the evidence to see the, day, the light of day. There's an old saying that doctors bury their failures. In this case, the CDC. Burying a lot of people. <laughs> Burying a lot of people. And some say that this is why they're so anxious to vaccinate everybody. So there, as I mentioned before, there's no control group to see what would have happened. Well, look, these people were, were not vaccinated. Look what happened, as opposed to those who were. Destroy the control group, and there, there's nothing, there's no case, right? Now I'm hearing from nurses that they're seeing not their floor is flooded with COVID patients, but their floor is covered with people who have all kinds of inexplicable diseases. Um, diseases they're finding very hard to, to explain and understand. An explosion of maladies now that people ordinarily would have their, their uh, immune systems handle constantly. Their immune, our immune systems are constantly fighting off diseases that are constantly trying to attack us, right? From our environment. And uh, when you have a healthy immune system, that's exactly what it does. When you cripple the immune system, well, then those diseases take over and they get the upper hand and they will kill you. And this is what I'm being told by biologists and medical personnel, that this is what the vaccines are doing to people. They're crippling their immune systems. In fact, people can go online right now and see a very moving and compelling uh, presentation, very brief presentation, but very much to the point, of a Dr. Nathan Thompson, who actually decided because of a patient of his who had a history of being, you know, illness. I, I think he, the man might have been even diabetic, but made him susceptible to other things, that this doc, Dr. Nathan Thompson decided to uh, monitor the blood of this patient before and between the two doses and after the two doses of the vaccine. And Dr. Thompson saw changes in this man's blood immediately after the first dose and immediately after the second dose that were horrific. 
And he says this man's immune system has been obliterated by the vaccine. And he attributes it. This is the vaccine that has done this to him. And, um, I mean, I admire the doctor for being so concerned for his patient. He actually is concerned about the welfare of his patient. Not just the data, but the actual human being, you know, on the, the chair before him. Maybe on the table in front of him someday. But anyway, um, but that uh, is a very telling uh, statement of, uh, again, the boots on the ground doctors who are treating people and what they're seeing. I mean, I think it's Dr. Nathan Thompson, as I recall. So uh, in any case, Tom, uh, you asked, so I thought I would just uh, say a few words. Sure. What was on my mind here? So, you know, we all have people we uh, are very... Uh, we love who have been vaccinated. We have, uh, we're worried about them. You know, we're very concerned about them. Uh, we have people who are fighting for their jobs, um, and uh, they're resisting. You know, being vaccinated. They're not just. I, I, I really get a charge out of that idea of vaccine hesitant. Like, I'm hesitant about this. You know, <laughs> you know that's absolute nonsense. There are people who are vaccine hesitant. They're being forced practically at gunpoint to get vaccinated. Uh, it's for a matter of uh, just survival for them, you know. How many people would say that I did it because I had to? I had no choice. Uh, I was forced to by my government, right? By my employer who was forced to by my government. And... Um, so, uh, you know, we're concerned about those people, too. It's, it's those who are uh, trying to stand up for their lives and trying to stand up for their livelihoods now. That, that's being threatened right now. So, no, we, we have to resist this, not just hesitate about it. We have to not hesitate. We have to resist, absolutely resist. Absolutely. With every power that God gives us to resist, right? Yep. Anything positive we can end on, Father? Well, you know, here we are, Tom. I mean, with all of this going on right now, and so many of us are living very comfortable lives. We haven't been hit yet too much by the supply chain problems of a hundred cargo ships being um, kept at anchor off of the ports of California, probably many more times than a hundred, with uh, goods to be delivered to us here. And yet, here we are, still living very comfortable lives. And we see the evils that are actually behind all of this. And we know that it comes down to what Our Lady told us at Fatima. Our sins. That we're flinging in the face of God every single day. Billions, trillions of sins. Blasphemies, sacrileges, right? Adulteries and so on. Here we are, still after all this, God is so... Patient. God is so patient and so merciful to us. And why I can't help but think is because there are good people out there who are praying and sacrificing and trying to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ the King. So, you know, our Lord doesn't require that we be perfect to be saved, as he said to the rich young man. He said, if you want to have everlasting life, keep the commandments. The rich young man said to our Lord, well, I've kept these commandments from my youth. And then our Lord said, well, if you want to be perfect, go leave all the riches behind, give to the poor, and come follow me. 
So our Lord doesn't require that we be perfect in order that we be saved. That's the merciful thing here. But also here, God doesn't demand that we be perfect in order to be saved today, even here. He just asks for reparation. That's what Our Lady was asking for. Fidelity, even for the few. It's still the ten just men, isn't it, really, when you get right down to it. Fidelity from even the few. And the fact that they're willing to love God enough, not only be faithful themselves, but to make reparation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. We see that merciful God here is sparing us, and he's putting up with this torrent of abuse himself, and he's still, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, pleading for mercy for us. Our Blessed Mother, pleading for mercy for us. That's amazing. If only we appreciate it. If only we appreciate it for what it really is. So even after all this, the world and the condition is here. We're able to sit here now, talk, and do what we're able to do. Say what we're able to say. Yes, there's opposition. There's always been opposition. But it's still happening. Thanks be to God, we can do this, do this. We still expect to have food on the table, to put food on the table for our own children. We still expect to have safe shelter, and so on. Thank God for that. What right do we have to expect that? Considering our own sins and the sins of mankind right now, the mercy of God. We have the mercy of God. Who can underestimate the wonder of that? Right? And uh, so we need to appreciate that. We need to, in other words, we who are traditional Catholics need to hold fast to our faith, even as St. Paul said to the Thessalonians. We need to hold out fast to our faith, faith and keep our eye on our goal. And that is out of love for our, our countries, for our, love for mankind, actually, and our, our nations, love for our families and love for our own souls, but above all, out of love for God, to labor, sacrifice, pray for. We say the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. What is that? Well, it comes down to the kingship of Christ. That's what Our Lady was. Her whole life was about that, Right? doing the will of the Father, and being there to serve her Son, our Lord, in carrying out the Father's will. Even though her motherhood was crucified with him on the cross, she totally united her will with his, as Jesus, our Lord, united his human will with the will of God the Father in heaven. Right? This is the key to salvation. So if you don't mind, since you asked, okay? See, I have to blame it on you. Okay. But uh, in the bulletin for last Sunday, I put a quote from Quas Primas, an encyclical of Pope Pius XI, right? Dated December 11th, 1925. I know you just read this, so this is very familiar to you. This encyclical, uh, Quas Primas, is on the kingship of Christ. Here we are in October, and we are coming up on the last Sunday in October, which is actually the last day of October, October 31st this year, where we celebrate the, the feast of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. That feast day was established by this encyclical in 1925, Pope Pius XI. I want to read section 24 in the beginning of section 25, just that, from that encyclical. It says a lot to us today. This is what Pope Pius XI said, about the kingship of Christ. He said, if we ordain 
that the whole church, I'm sorry, if we ordain that the whole Catholic world shall revere Christ as king, we shall minister to the need of the present day and at the same time provide an excellent remedy for the plague which now infects society. These words were written almost a hundred years ago. We refer to the plague of anti-clericalism. You ever hear that before? From the mouth of Francis, right? Its errors and impious activities. This evil spirit, as you are well aware, venerable brethren, has not come into being in one day. It has long lurked beneath the surface. The, the empire of Christ over all nations was rejected. The right which the church has from Christ himself to teach mankind, to make laws, to govern peoples, to govern peoples in all that pertains to their eternal salvation, that right was denied. Then, gradually, the religion of Christ came to be likened to false religions and to be placed ignominiously on the same level with them. It was then put under the power of the state and tolerated more or less at the whim of princes and rulers. Some men even went further and wished to set up in the place of God's religion a natural religion consisting in some instinctive affection of the heart. There were even some nations who thought that they could dispense with God and that their religion should consist in impiety and the neglect of God. The rebellion of individuals and states against the authority of Christ has produced deplorable consequences. We lamented these in the encyclical Ubi Arcano. We lament them today. The seeds of discord sown far and wide, those bitter enmities and rivalries between nations, which still hinder so much the cause of peace. That insatiable greed, which is so often hidden under a pretense of public spirit and patriotism, and gives rise to so many private quarrels, a blind and immoderate selfishness, making men seek nothing but their own comfort and their own advantage, and measure everything by these. No peace in the home, because men have forgotten or neglect their duty, the unity and stability of the family undermined, society, in a word, shaken to its foundations, and on the way to ruin. We firmly hope, however, that the feast of the kingship of Christ which in future will be yearly observed, may hasten the return of society to our loving Savior. It would be the duty of Catholics to do all they can to bring about this happy result. Many of these, the Catholic people, however, have neither the station in society nor the authority which should belong to those who bear the torch of truth. This state of things may perhaps be attributed to a certain slowness and timidity in good people. He's talking to us right now. Who are reluctant to engage in conflict or oppose but a weak resistance. Thus the enemies of the church become bolder in their attacks. But if the faithful were generally to understand 
that it behooves them ever to fight courageously under the banner of Christ their King. Then, fired with apostolic zeal, they would strive to win over to their Lord those hearts that are bitter and estranged from him and would valiantly defend his rights. And this is number 25. Moreover, the annual and universal celebration of the Feast of the Kingship of Christ will draw attention to the evils which anti-clericalism has brought upon society in drawing men away from Christ and will also do much to remedy them. While nations insult the beloved name of our Redeemer by suppressing all mention of it in their conferences and parliaments, we must all the more loudly proclaim his kingly dignity and power, all the more universally affirm his rights, the rights of Christ the King. So that is actually a, a little excerpt from the encyclical, but I think it is very, very applicable to our day, even a thousand times more than it was when Pope Pius XI wrote this encyclical in 1925. So uh, there, is, there you are. That's what we are meant to do. This is what traditional Catholics are called to do, to continually assert the rights of Christ the King in our own personal lives, in our families, in our nation, in the whole world. And we can't be shy about it. We can't be, he says, slow or timid about it, right? We have to be bold about it and, and very convinced. So anyway, Tom, I turn the floor over to you again. Well, thank you, Father. Thanks for reading that. Thank you for everything. That's very beautiful. And thank you for being here tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Tom. And thanks our, to our listeners also. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.